this type of emergent capability is super interesting for us to see and super exciting for us. By using a better language model, we can improve robotics performance kind of for free. Talk on app. Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time, featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at Talk RL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. A brief message from AnyScale, our sponsor for this episode. Reinforcement learning is gaining traction as a complementary approach to supervised learning with applications ranging from recommender systems to games to production planning. So don't miss Ray Summit, the annual user conference for the Ray Open Source Project, where you can hear how teams at Dow, Verizon, Riot Games, and more are solving their RL challenges with RLLib. That's the Ray Ecosystems Open Source Library for RL. Ray Summit is happening August 23rd and 24th in San Francisco. You can register at raysummit.org and use the code RAYSUMMIT22RL for a further 25% off the already reduced prices of 100 bucks for keynotes only or 150 to add a tutorial from Sven. These prices are for the first 25 people to register. Now I can see from personal experience, I've used Ray's RLlib and I have recommended it for consulting clients. It's easy to get started with, but it's also highly scalable and supports a variety of advanced algorithms and, and settings. Now on to our episode. Carol Hausman is a senior research scientist at Google Brain and an adjunct professor at Stanford working on robotics and machine learning. Carol is interested in enabling robots to acquire general purpose skills with minimal supervision in real world environments. Fei Sha is a research scientist with Google Research. Fei Sha is mostly interested in robot learning in complex and unstructured environments. Previously, he's been approaching this problem by learning in realistic and scalable simulation environments, including Gibson, Env, and iGibson. Most recently, he's been exploring using foundation models for those challenges. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for the invite. So I reached out to you uh, about an interview on SACAN because I wanted to hear more about how you combine these different lines of work with language models and robotics. And I think it's really cool that you focus on this very challenging and practical domain and got some really interesting results. So let's get started with SACAN. So that paper is entitled, Do As I Can, Not As I Say, Grounding Language in Robotic Affordances. That's on et al. in 2022. To start with, could you give us a, a high-level idea of what is SACAN about? Yeah, so SACAN is about um, allowing robots to execute long horizon abstract commands that can be expressed in natural language. So it would the, the goal was to allow users to just talk to a robot and describe what they want. And even if the task is very long and it would be very difficult for robots to, to execute it, we thought that by leveraging large language models, we should be able to break a task down into smaller set of steps that the robot is actually capable of doing and then helping the user with executing the instruction. Um, the high level idea behind it is that we want to combine large language models with robot learning in a way that um, they benefit each other. So large language models in this equation provide the semantic knowledge that is in them. So they they know quite a lot about the world from looking at text that is all over the internet. Um, and um, at the same time, they can also understand what you, what you mean exactly. And we can also use them um, to break down tasks into smaller steps. 
And then on the other hand, robotics can be used to ground these language models in the real world. So the way that large language models are trained is such that um, they don't really get to experience what these words actually mean. They just get to read them and kind of um, learn about the statistics of which words comes after other words. And we, we were hoping that robotics can provide this this actual experience of what it means to do something. You know, what, what does it correspond to in the real world? So here the, the high level idea was that the, the robots would provide this kind of grounding through affordances so that the two combined together, LLMs and robots, can execute long horizon tasks. And you use that phrase, the phrase affordances. Uh, what, what does that mean here in this context? Yeah, in this context, we uh, refer to affordances as something that is aware of what the robot is capable of doing in a given situation with a given embodiment. So for instance, if you ask a robot to bring you a Coke, um, it should be able to tell whether it's actually possible to bring you a Coke, whether it has the right gripper or the right arm, whether even it has an arm so that it can bring it, whether there is a Coke that it can see, whether it's in some room that you know there's no Cokes to be found. Um, so affordances is, would be something that tells the robot what's currently possible given the state of the environment and the robot's embodiment. I want to briefly add that the, uh, the concept of affordance comes from like American psychologist James J. Gibson in the ecological approach to visual perception. It means what the environment offers the individual. So in this case, it means what the robot can do in, in a certain state. So that's what we mean by affordances. There's this notion of using language models for scoring these these affordance phrases, if I can call them that. Can you can you talk about how that works? This is using a language model in a in a different way than I'm used to seeing, not for generation but for scoring. So generally, there are two ways that you can decode from a language model. One way is called generative mode, because language model essentially predict the probability of next token conditioned on previous tokens. So if you just sample from the probability, then you're doing generative mode. You can do greedy sampling, or you can do have some temperature and do like more diverse sampling. There's another way, basically, you force the output to be the phrases that you want, and then you calculate the likelihood. That is the scoring mode. The reason that we use scoring mode is mainly to constrain language model to speak our robot language. So our ro robot only have a certain set of skills. So we want to constrain the output to be from the set of skills, and we want to compare mm -hmm. the likelihood of different skills. Uh, through our experiments, we have compared the generative modes and scoring mode. Uh, in general, we find scoring mode to be more stable. Um, and we, we, we also tried generative mode. Uh, in the generative mode, you generate some like arbitrary phrase, then you still need to find the nearest neighbor of the robot skill. There are some additional errors introduced in this mapping stage. So mm. uh, through the experiments, we find the scoring mode seems to be more, more stable. And what is the state of the art in this area before SACAM? Yeah, I think there's a few works that talk about using LLMs as zero-shot planners. There is the original GPT-3 paper that talks about the the um, capabilities of language models as, as meta-learners. Um, there's also the paper from um, Wenlong Kuang et al. Um, that came out at around similar time that talks about using language models as zero-shot planners. Um, these don't, have, don't talk about real robot results yet. Um, and... Um, they have been showing, I think, some glimpses of what LLMs are capable of in terms of um, just meta-learners or 
as planners that could be applied to something like robotics. And I think that the other body of work that started being quite popular lately is just using language as a conditioning mechanism for policies for robotics. Um, an example of work like this would be BCZ by um, Eric Jung and, uh, Jang and others, where you still use a large language model to find the uh, embedding of the instruction that you're sending to the robot. And that allows you to leverage natural instructions as well. But it doesn't really extract the high level knowledge from LLM the same way that Seiken does, does, where it can kind of contextualize it based on everything it learned. Tell us more about this robot. What is, what is it? What is it capable of? So the robot that we use is a mobile manipulator from everyday robots. Uh, a mobile manipulator means it can navigate around and it also have an arm that can manipulate things. It, uh, so in this work, we mainly use the vision system. We use the, the camera images, which is 640 by 512 RGB images as input. The robot has 7 degree of freedom arm with a two-finger gripper attached to the end, and then we mainly use that for manipulation. Uh, finally, it has a navigation stack that uh, it's based on wheels. Um, it can drive around in the scene uh, without collision. So that's basically the robot that we use. I want to highlight that the, the mobile manipulation is a big challenge because uh, you need to decide like where, where to stop to enable manipulation. So if you stop too far, then you, you're not able to manipulate. So generally, it's a very difficult problem uh, for us to solve, and uh, the robot platform enables us to do that. You have taught this robot a set of skills, each with their own value function, and these, this is kind of like a pre-training step. How, how did you train these, these skills? And what kind of skills are we talking about? Right, this is a good question. So um, at the time when, when we published Seiken, this was, I think, around 300 different task instructions um, that included fairly simple skills such as picking, placing, uh, moving things around, placing things upright, knocking things over, things like that. And we'll be updating the paper very soon where we'll be adding additional skills. Um, such as opening and closing drawers and, and putting things in and out of them. So this is kind of the, the level of skill complexity that we introduced. Um, in terms of how we train these skills, um, this is, I think, the where majority of the work goes. Um, and this is the, the really, really hard part um, of robotics. How do you actually get the robot to move and do the thing that you want it to do? Um, so we use the combination of behavioral cloning um, as well as reinforcement learning. In, in this case, in particular, we are constantly comparing the different methods and how they scale with data and how they scale with the amount of uh, demonstrations we have, the amount of data collected autonomously, whether we can leverage simulation data as well. So this is constantly changing as to you know, which method is winning. At the time of the release of the paper, all the policies that were used on the real robot were trained using behavior cloning. And then we used the value functions that were trained in simulation that were leveraging all the simulation data. Simulation was then um, transformed to look more realistic using CycleGAN so that the, the images reflect a little bit better what the real world looks like. And we were getting the value functions from those. So where did the idea uh, for CCAN come from? For us, we started with trying to incorporate planning to do more long horizon tasks first. And we were thinking of all kinds of planners and different ways of, of thinking about the representation of the low level skills and so on. And um, as we were looking into that, um, 
in the meantime, uh, Brian Ictor and, and Feisha noticed that language is a really, really good interface for planning. And um, it's not only a really good interface that kind of allows you to compose these different plans in many different ways, it's very compositional, but it also allows you to then leverage large language models, which is kind of like a planner in, in disguise that you can just take from a from from another lab that has trained it and and just use it and see how how well it works for your robotic domain yeah i think during that time we also there is also a plethora of work that um, discuss using language model as zero shot x where, where x could be like zero shot reasoner zero shot planner um, zero shot learner and we were just thinking what if the x is robotics like what we can uh, extract uh, now, like what knowledge can we extract from large language model and apply it to robotics? Apparently, when we talk to a language model, it produces something that is reasonable. For example, if you say, I spill my drink, it will say, find cleaner, find vacuum. It's not absolutely right. It's not actionable, but we find that the knowledge is there. So the question then becomes, how do we make those knowledge more actionable? And then that kind of inspired the work of Seiken. Okay, and then just one more definition. Uh, can you clarify what you mean by grounding in this context exactly? Specifically in Seiken, grounding refers to this idea of affordance models that are that allow you to predict what is the success rate of doing a certain task given given a current state. What's the what's the probability of you succeeding at the task given that you're starting at a particular state and given the description of that task. More generally, the, the idea of grounding basically means that the, the LLMs don't really know what what the words that they're operating with, the, what they what they actually mean. They're kind of just like parrots that memorize different statistics. And robotics kind of allows them to associate these word these words with with real world experiences. So they kind of ground them into in, in real experiences so that the robot actually it's or the, the whole system actually knows what it means to pick something up or to drop something, what it what it feels like and also what it what it looks like. Um, so it's much more grounded knowledge. And I see that Seikan turns a, a natural language request into this list of steps that, that uh, corresponds to the set of skills that it already knows. So like if this human said, how would you get a sponge from the counter and put it in the sink? Then the robot comes back with a list of steps. One, find a sponge. Two, pick up the sponge. Three, go to the sink, etc. How do you get a, um, a general language model to come back with such a specific list yeah maybe i can speak to this question so the way that we um, get the language model to produce the steps is the following so first we use few shot prompting so we already show the language model a couple of examples of human ask a question and the robot will list one two three four five what are the steps so the few shot prompting generally get the structure of the answer correct so then every time human asks a question the robot will answer like one, two, three, four, five. That's the few-shot prompting part. Then uh, we also have this scoring-based decoding mechanism. So we basically have a question, human asks a question, and then we have robot says one, and one, uh, and then we leave a blank there, and we put all possible actions of the robot can do, and then score different options. So for example, when the question has a sponge in that, um, every option that also contains sponge will have higher score. That's because just how generally language model works, it scores relevance. Um, so that's the language part of the decoding scheme. We also have another branch that predict affordances, like 
what is the success rate of you find a sponge here? What is mm -hmm. the success rate of you pick up the sponge here? We multiply the two scores, the language score and also the affordance score, and we get a combined score. Then all the options get a combined score, and we just choose the highest uh, combined score. In this case, the first step would be to find a sponge, and then we repeat this process and append like two blank, and then um, ask the language model to score uh, the second step. We re repeat this process until it outputs a done token, which means the entire task sequence is finished. Maybe to add a little bit to this, I think one one aspect that at least I didn't realize initially that we started noticing once we kind of deployed the system is how interpretable it is. So you can very easily visualize what the language model thinks and what the robot thinks, what the affordance model thinks. And then you can kind of uh, look into the robot to see, you know, whether the affordance model didn't have that many successes in that particular scenario. And because of that, it um, downgrades that particular skill or whether the LLM makes you know, a prediction that doesn't really make sense. So you can kind of quickly take a look and see exactly how the algorithm is progressing and why you picked that particular step as opposed to another one. So when when the humans asked for uh, how to do something and the robot, I understand for the for, on the first step, the robot's going to answer based on the existing context. And then when it goes to say the second step, um, is this a language model uh, knowing that after the step one is done from general knowledge, what makes sense to do next and then combine with the scoring? So it's really leveraging the general knowledge embedded in the language model to order these things correctly. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, because the as you execute it, the steps get appended to the to the prompt. So then the language model kind of knows that I already found the sponge. Now I should probably pick it up. And then it uses the affordance models and all of that to, to score it. Right. That's very interesting. So it kind of just emerges this ability to uh, to chain these things together just emerges from that from that language model. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, there's I guess there's really good things about that and then some negatives too, right? Like it would be it would be challenging to teach it or correct something in, in its planning. Is that is that one possible limitation here? Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. So um, here we are kind of diving into the world of planning. That is a very vast world with you know many different options where you can do myopic planning, non myopic planning with the feedback and all kinds of different things. And I think Seiken is just a very first step showing how you can do how you can make these open loop plans mm -hmm. that are very myopic. So like, for instance, if you failed at step number two, um, the language model doesn't really have any feedback mechanism in Seiken to realize that well, I failed. I should probably try it again, or you know, try to fix it somehow. Some of the some of these things we are starting to work on how to make it a little less myopic and kind of optimize all the steps so that you can you can kind of look a little bit more into the future and think about your your plan more holistically. Um, in the follow up work on on inner monologue that I think Faye could talk a little bit more about, um, we also try to incorporate some some feedback into the into the planner and into the language model so that we can correct these these missteps if they happen. Cool. I'm looking forward to talking about that as well in just a few minutes. In terms of Seikan, were there surprises for you in, in doing this? And were you like pretty sure this would work from the beginning or were you did you have a lot of uncertainty about certain parts of it? Yeah, I think that's a super great question. Um, at the beginning, we, we are not sure if that's going to work. Like We just uh, tried a few examples and uh, it works surprisingly well. For example, it started to work for if I say throw something away, then it un understands you need to go to the trash can. So I think that's kind of interesting. 
another interesting like kind of a aha moment for me is when we say I spill my drink, can you help? And the robot goes to find the sponge. So that's super surprising to me because uh, in order to do that sort of um, inference, you need to understand a lot of world knowledge. You need to understand that if I spill something, that means there's liquid. If there's liquid, a sponge can absorb a liquid, then the robot should find the sponge. So I always think that the sponge was kind of an aha moment um, mm. that um, super, super surprising and this kind of emergent capability is super cool. So that's one thing that is surprising to me. Another thing that is kind of surprising to me is how well things scales. So in the uh, the paper that we are about to update, we talk about Palm Seiken. Uh, so previously, Seiken was using a language model called Flan, uh, which has about uh, 137 billion parameter model. When we switch it to a larger language model, which is Pathway language model, uh, which has 540 billion parameter model, then it solves a lot of the planning mistakes that we are seeing at a smaller scale. So it's really surprising that just by scaling the language model that we are solving a lot of like planning errors, uh, these common sense reasoning problems. One particular thing that is super interesting is that language models historically don't handle like negation very well. If you say, I don't like Coke, bring me a drink. It will still bring you a Coke because the Coke um, has um, it has Coke in the context. It has Coke in the previous sentence. So the relevance uh, just makes the score of the Coke higher. With the new uh, Palm Seiken, uh, we find we can do a sort uh, a technique called chain of thought prompting. So basically before generating the plan, the robot also generates a chain of thought. With a chain of thought, it handles like negation super well. It can say, the user doesn't like Coke, so I will bring something else. Sprite is not Coke, so I will bring Sprite. And then it will generate a plan to bring a Sprite instead. So this type of emergent capability is super interesting for us to see and super um, exciting for us and surprises us a lot. Yeah, I think for me, the the big surprise that I wasn't expecting was this, this, um, this ability for the robotic system to scale with better language models. I think this is super exciting. Um, because as we know, there's many, many people, many researchers working on getting LLMs to be better and to scaling them up to just improving them constantly. And just seeing that by using a better language model, we can improve robotics performance kind of, you know, for free by just swapping it out without changing anything on the robot. I think that is, that is really exciting. That kind of allows us to ride that wave of better and better LLMs and improving robot performance that way. So we've been seeing bigger and better performing LLMs. I'm not sure what hardware they run on, but I'm assuming they don't run on the robot. Is that right? That's right. They they run on TPUs, and we uh, we call it through some sort of bridge. What does the latency look like there? Is is that a limiting factor at all, or is it is it pretty fast? Yeah, that's a great question. So for some part of the robot system, it's latency sensitive. For example, if you're doing grasping, it's super sensitive to latency. Like if you miss one step, then you're getting like outdated data and then uh, it can mess up the manipulation. Mm. Uh, fortunately for the planning, it's not a time sensitive mm -hmm. step. Like the robot can just uh, stop and think. It can tell people, I'm, I am re uh, doing the inference. So um, in terms of the latency for the latest palms they can, uh, we are seeing about three seconds of latency in terms of reasoning. So it's actually not too bad. Usually uh, each steps takes about like 30 seconds. 
So it's not bottlenecked by the inference speed of the planning. And then the value functions, are they running locally as well, or they're just fast anyway? Yeah, the, the value functions are super fast. They, they can run a couple hertz, so that's not a bottleneck. I, yesterday, I told my wife and my mother-in-law about the interview uh, today and about the robots, and, and they, were, they were excited. They asked me, well, what can this robot cook? And I, I had to explain that you know, <laughs> robotics is really hard, and you know, it's not at that state of the art is not there yet. It's no failing of SACAN. That's just how the field is right now. Um, but what, uh, what should I tell them uh, in terms of when, when we might expect a robot like this to, to cook us a meal? Which sounds like pretty far off, but, uh, but maybe not the way things are going. Yeah, I think it's really hard to make predictions about, about things like that. I think we're making quite a lot of progress, but it's kind of difficult to foresee what are the challenges that we'll, we'll see with, with getting there. One, one thing that I tend to mention when, when I get asked by my family questions like that is the Moravex paradox, where um, in AI, it's the, the easy things that are hard and it's the hard things that are relatively easier. So the, the things that seem very easy to us, such as manipulating objects or cooking a meal or just walking around and, you know, playing with toys and things like simple manipulation skills only seem easy because we've been doing them for you know, thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and the evolution just made it so that it just seems extremely easy to us um, versus the, the other th things that require more reasoning, so things like mathematical equations or playing complex games, things that we would usually consider the intelligent things there. We, we haven't been doing them for that long on the evolutionary scale. So robots or the, the algorithms don't have that much to, to catch up on. So I feel like the, the embodied version of AI, where we actually have to manipulate the world around us and understand what's happening. This is the really, really hard part. And it's kind of difficult to, um, to get that across sometimes because, you know, it just seems so easy. Like I can cook a, a meal very easily. Or even a you know even as a small kid can kind of has has manipulation capabilities that far exceed what the robots can do today. Okay, I'm gonna try to explain that to them. <laughs> Thanks for that. Okay, and then in terms of uh, the idea of end-to-end -end learning versus this compositional style where you're putting together pre-built components, uh, I'm curious how you how you guys see that. Like it seemed that at some time. You know, some people were really extolling the virtues of end-to-end -end deep learning, but then more recently, these foundation models have become really popular where there's a lot of pre-training involved and we don't expect to, to learn end-to-end -end, or if, if at most a bit of fine-tuning. Do you think the future is going to involve a lot more of this pre-training and composition the way we're seeing here? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Looking back at how robot learning has evolved, it seems that Initially, we started with things that are a little bit more modular, um, that are a little bit easier to implement, a little bit easier to understand, and they kind of make a lot of sense initially. And then as we get better at them and they start to work, we put them into this end-to-end -end system that optimizes only for the thing that we care about, and then it finds the right representations to communicate between these different components. That, that happened in the past, for instance, with perception and control, where we would have a perceptual system that would and for instance, estimate the, the pose of an object or recognize the object and so on. And then we'll take that representation that we came up with um, and feed it to a, to a controller. I think that right now with the, with the language models, with these planners, we are going through a similar cycle where we are at this very initial step where it's much easier to think of them as these modular components where you have a separate planner that just 
gives you the next set of steps to do. And then you have a separate end-to-end -end in this case, but separate uh, controller, um, closed-loop controller that can take a short command and execute it. But I think over time, as we kind of start to develop them more and more, they'll become more unified and more end-to-end. In, in this work in, in particular, in, in Seiken, prompting the LLMs was just the path of least resistance. It was just very easy to do and we could see the results straight away. But I think we, we can start thinking about how can we combine it in one big system that can, where we can be fine-tuning the LLM planner as well as the low-level skills jointly based on all the data that we, that we are collecting. Okay, let's talk about some of the uh, the work that this this is uh, built upon. Uh, we won't go into into great depth at these, but just just a few brief mentions of, for example, I think the RL algorithm you're using here is is MT opt based on QT opt. Is that right? And and can you um, briefly tell us about QT opt? I think I, if I understand correctly, that's what you're using to learn the grasping uh, from images with offline pre-training. That's right. So why QT opt? There's other RL algorithms that that could do continuous control from images. Could you could you just spend a moment telling us why QT opt and MT opt uh, for this for this case? Right. Yeah. Of course. Um, yeah. So in our experience, we've been experimenting with a lot of these different algorithms and a lot of different variants. I think one aspect that makes it a little bit different for us is that we try to do it at scale. So with a lot of different tasks, with a lot of robots, a lot of data, and so on. And often the, the algorithms, as we see them on smaller scale benchmarks, compare differently on larger scale. So with Qt Opt in particular, what we really like about it is that it's really stable. If, if set up correctly, it just optimizes things quite well and it usually works. Um, and it's much less fragile than algorithms that use, um, that are actor critic algorithms. Um, I think we have some hunches on why that is one kind of uh, one thought there is that um, in Qt opt the optimization of of the of the actor is completely independent from the optimization of the the Q function and I think that makes it just like a little bit more robust setup where there's no actor um, we just have a another optimizer that stays constant throughout the training um, and that kind of removes this one one aspect that can be quite difficult in, in actor-critic algorithms. So we just found it a little bit more stable in these large-scale settings. But I think um, this is not a, the final answer. I think, you know, as we explore these algorithms more, and there's so many things to try, so many different combinations between these algorithms, different actor architectures, critic architectures, you know, optimization schemes and so on, I think we'll get more answers just um, at, at the current time uh, to us, Qt Opt was working the best. And Faye, you mentioned uh, Realmogen, which I understand was part of your dissertation, and that was partly inspirational for this work. Can you briefly describe what uh, what that adds? Yeah, sure. Uh, so Realmogen is a, a, a previous work by me, uh, which explores using motion generation and reinforcement learning together. So for that work, uh, we are also tackling the problem of mobile manipulation. Uh, it's super challenging because you, you need to control where to move and where to do the manipulation. What we found uh, in that paper, so that's basically a hierarchical reinforced learning work uh, and uh, the low level is uh, motion generation, which is not learned, but rather some uh, classical like planning based methods. What we found is that uh, for these long horizon problems, it's beneficial to decompose the problem in a hierarchical fashion. 
And it will be even better if the steps decomposed are semantically meaningful, uh, such as some like navigation steps interleaved with some mani manipulation steps. So I would say that's a, a good inspiration for the SACAN line of work, uh, where we also decompose a long horizon problem into a few uh, short horizon steps, which is like more manageable to learn um, in the low level. Okay, and then you also mentioned uh, another work, action models, where it uses hindsight relabeling and goal chaining, uh, I guess, to, to help with scaling the learning with a fixed amount of data. Can, can you just say briefly what, uh, what, this, what action models contribute here? Yeah, so actionable models was the work that we, that we did right after MTOpt where um, I think the, the main kind of contribution in terms of SACAN is quite nuanced here. So this is an offline RL method that takes all the data that we used for, for MTOpt, we collected for MTOpt where we had a, a pre-specified set of tasks, like 12 or 14 tasks or something like that. Um, these were encoded as just one hot vectors. So there was just task number one, two, three, so on. Um, we collected a lot of data with it. Then we did this multitask reinforcement learning with, with QTOpt called MTOpt. And um, we were constantly talking about what other tasks to add. And as you try to scale these systems, this question actually becomes quite tricky, um, especially as you, you know, try to do this at scale and you want the robots to run autonomously and so on. And this is something that didn't occur, at least to me, when when we were starting that project that, um, you know, you kind of have to come up with as many tasks as you can. Um, and at the same task, at the same time, these tasks have to potentially reset each other so that they can run continuously autonomously without any human intervention. They also have to be meaningful tasks and very diverse and so on. So it seemed that at a certain scale, just, uh, coming up with the tasks themselves becomes a bottleneck. So in, in actionable models, we thought that, um, Rather than thinking of all kinds of different tasks, let's just do goal condition queue learning. So let's consider every state as a potential task, as a potential goal, and try to get to that goal. Um, this was done completely offline, so we didn't have to collect any additional data. And we trained on all the data collected with MTOpt, and it worked really well. Um, I think this was kind of a big aha moment for us in terms of um, you know these one-hot representations that we were using before to represent tasks were kind of difficult to work with. And the goal images just seemed much closer to what we actually wanted. It also allowed us to just scale the number of tasks significantly because now any goal image is actually a, a task representation. And I think that was a step towards getting to language condition policies where language is this kind of space in between where it's very compositional, it's very natural to express to the robot what you want it to do. Um, much more, I think, natural than, than goal image. Um, but at the same time, language captures these different relationships between tasks much better than one hot vectors, for instance. So if we had a task that is, I don't know, pick up a carrot and pick up a cucumber, if one is represented as task number one and the other is represented as task number two, uh, in terms of the representation of these tasks, they're like completely orthogonal. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that they share versus you know, the way that language was formed was such that you know, we call things picking because whether it's picking carrot or picking cucumbers, they kind of look very similar. We, the language can groups them together. That's how it came about. Um, so I think language, not, it's not only a really good interface, but it also allows 
for better representations for learning all of these skills together. Okay, let's move on to follow-up work. This is called Inner Monologue Embodied Reasoning Through Planning with Action with Language Models. Uh, and that was with yourself as authors slash co-authors. So this paper was published since we scheduled the interview and it definitely feels like an unexpected bonus. So I'm excited to uh, to be able to chat about you with this. You uh, you extend SACAN in, in some different ways and get some really interesting results here. So can you talk about the general idea of, of inner monologue? For the inner monologue, it's mainly tried to address the shortcomings of SACAN. So SACAN is more doing open loop planning and it doesn't respond to certain failure cases. Uh, it will just continue to do like plan further. Uh, for inner monologue, we try to let the language model source feedback from the environment and from human and then do closed loop planning. Uh, one big inspiration for the inner monologue is Palm SACAN because we find using large larger language models it gives us like some extra capability to play with. So we try to have a more unstructured way of like prompting the language model and find it can still do the planning in a very high quality. So that's kind of the main idea of inner monologue. So the text in uh, inner monologue looks looks a little bit like a screenplay script with the different actors and, and there's some narration, uh, different statements by the human robot scene, some questions, and I gather that's all fed, fed into the uh, language model. So what are the different types of uh, utterances here uh, that the that the text can contain? It's different than say can, right? Right, that's, uh, that's different than say can. I would like to say that the inner monologue is also inspired by Socratic models where they find you can just use multiple models to communicate using language. So this is exactly what we are doing here. Um, there are different actors that can uh, can talk to each other. And then uh, there is also a planning step which summarizes the, the whoever have talked and generate the plan. So here are some of the actors that we have here. The first is success detection, which it detects if a previous step is successful or not. And then it will say the action is successful or the action failed. Second, we have passive scene description. The passive scene description basically describes the scene. It can be an object detector telling you there are certain objects in the scene, there are certain objects in certain locations, there are some like state of the object. This all, pass this all fall into the passive scene description. There is also active scene description where the robot can actively ask questions about the scene. It can ask human like what is the color of certain things, or it can ask a human, here are two drinks, which one do you like? So it will ask question when it feels it needs to. So these are the source of feedback that we are gathering. So we, we talked to Rohan Shah recently on the show, and he talked about this idea of active querying and, and actually learning to, learning to ask. But in, in this setting here, how does your system uh, learn or figure out when it's appropriate to, to ask? We figure out where to ask mainly f through it's still through few shot prompting. Uh, we give it a couple examples when there are um, ambiguous when when the query is amb ambiguous, then it will further ask to clarify the query. It's a little bit into the implementation detail where like the robot finish finishes a task and we score different options. We score and continue and ask right. So if the and ask score is higher, then we will uh, further prompt the language model to um, ask a question. So here, it's a slight deviation from the SACAN like scoring-based decoding. But for these cases, uh, we find gener generative decoding is more helpful here. And it, it can always generate like meaningful questions to answer, to ask 
to uh, reduce ambiguity, for example. And you reported some interesting uh, generalization and emergent capabilities uh, in this inner monologue work. Can you can you talk about that? And were some of those surprising to you? Yeah, there are some uh, ge some generalization or emergent capability that are super surprising to us. So first, let me just briefly define like what are the emergent capability. I guess there are two meanings. Like one is that the capability only emerges at a larger scale. So in this case, we use uh, the Palm pathway language model, um, and uh, such capability only exhibit in such a scale. If you use a smaller language model, it probably will not have those capabilities. The second kind of uh, implicit meaning of emergent capability is that it's not uh, shown in the like few shot prompt, so it's completely new to uh, uh, as those capabilities. One capability that we find is that uh, it can generalize to like a human changing the request. For example, the human say, "Go to go to do task A," and then as the robot was doing, we insert uh, "Go to do task B." and the robot will change its plan to do task B. And here, we, we can also say, never mind, go, go to finish your previous task. And then, in this case, the robot go back to finish the task A. So this is quite surprising to us because we find that um, uh, it understands this history, it understands uh, what, what does the previous task mean, uh, all due to like, the large language model and our interface is very natural. There are other couple emergent capabilities uh, such as, um, in, in one case, we find it can also generalize to, like, you, you can use emoji as a query. For example, you can say uh, a, a square, a yellow square uh, points to a um, red circle, and it will put the yellow block into the red bowl. So this is another, like, emergent capability that we see that is super interesting. Another very interesting emergent capability is that it can also propose a new plan based on a prompt such as try a new try a new method. Like when the robot fails at doing a task, there are usually two reasons. First, it's could it could be its manipulation policy has noise, so it fails at doing a task. In this case, the best plan was to try again. There could also be that the plan is not feasible. For example, if you are trying to grasp a block and the block is too heavy and in this case, the plan would be to change a block to grasp. So we find we can just provide a tiny hint to the language model. We can just say, please try a different plan, or do you have any other idea? And then the language model would just generate a different plan. So this is also super exciting for us. Uh, we have never seen this in um, our previous work. And I saw that uh, you, you showed Inner Monologue did well on, on unseen tasks. Actually, to me, it seemed surprisingly well. And whereas the baseline method got all zeros, so did you did you expect uh, it to be doing this well on on the unseen tasks? I th I think for um, in terms of unseen tasks, we uh, I guess you are referring to the comparison with Clipboard. Yes. Um, yes. So the Clipboard is trained to do like those tasks with demonstration. So in that case, it naturally doesn't generalize to uh, new tasks super well. Like it's mainly um, it, it will perform pretty well for the same task, but it doesn't generalize to novel tasks. That's because the clipboard doesn't leverage like the rich knowledge presented in the large language models. Uh, in our work, the generalization mainly come from the language model. In that case, it's kind of natural for uh, in a monologue to generalize to novel tasks where we see some other methods uh, struggles. And, and does the uh, does inner monologue cons consider the whole text 
uh, as the prompt or you you mentioned a scratch pad I, I actually didn't follow that does it does it use the whole thing as the uh, as the prompt for the language model right it used the whole thing as uh, as uh, the prompt so i i mentioned scratch pad because there are some uh, relevant work in the nlp community that kind of inspired the inner monologue two of the papers are one is a chain of thought prompting where they just allow language model to generate a chain of thought before actually decoding mm -hmm. uh, the answer another is called scratchpad where the language model can just like call different modules and then uh, keep some notes in the scratchpad before decoding an answer uh, in the inner, inner monologue, we use the inner monologue itself as a scratch pad. So uh, every actor can write to that scratch pad, and then uh, we decode some actions. Like every time we decode, for example, robot action, uh, it is consuming all previous history steps as a prompt. I see. Okay. Can we talk about this uh, set of pre-trained skills? How do you expand this set of skills? Uh, Carol, you said that that was a large part of the work was was training these skills. Do you see a way around that, or is there a way to? Are you envisioning a way to automatically acquire skills unsupervised, or how how do you see that uh, scaling up? Um, yeah, this is this is a really important question, and I can't emphasize enough how uh, how difficult it is to actually to to work on the low level skills and how important this this is definitely the the bottleneck for the entire system. Um, so I think one thing that is quite exciting about about Seiken is that before when we were thinking about what skills to add, you would usually just like sit down and you know as as engineers and researchers will just think about it and vote or something like this and then add that skill. Now we are at the level where um, Seiken starts to be useful and can be used in in an office, for instance, where the robot can um, maybe bring you a snack from from a kitchen or something like this. So it can start interacting with real users. I think this is probably a much better way coming up with new tasks. So we can just see what are the things that users ask for um, quite often and then see what are the skills that would enable that. So we can kind of more automatically decide what are the, what are the, the things that are missing. Um, in terms of how to add the skills, um, there's many options there. So Seiken is quite modular in that way uh, where you can add a skill that was trained with behavior cloning with reinforcement learning, it could be a scripted skill. Anything works as long as it has a, an affordance function associated with it. So it kind of um, allows us to mm. consider all these options. Separately, when we when we are thinking about these skills, we're kind of thinking about um, potentially also having the, the language model come up with the skills that, that could be useful in, in these settings so that would automate it even further. Overall, yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into this and I hope that we'll have some answers or some reports on this soon. So stay tuned. <laughs> it seems to me the, the use of these large language models in this context is maybe a bit of a double-edged sword. Like on, you showed in the in the inner monologue paper that you had a request in Chinese. And even though you didn't design it to understand Chinese necessarily because the language model had seen Chinese before, it was able to understand it zero shot and do the right thing which is pretty amazing and then on the other hand it the language models would have all these things in them that you don't really need for this setting or maybe even i'm not sure if you'd even necessarily want like do you want your kitchen robot to have read all of reddit or to understand uh, irony and all this stuff i don't know maybe you do um can you talk about like the idea of uh using these general 
purpose language models for very specialized purposes. Do you, do you think uh, in the future you'd want to have uh, very specialized language models that were, were kind of pared down? Um, it seems to me there's like a, the tension between like a good old-fashioned AI system. It just doesn't know enough things, and you have to keep working hard to add facts and, and knowledge. And, and here you have the opposite problem where you have an LLM, which actually in some ways maybe knows too much. Do you, do you, is that a concern at all or, or not so much? Uh, first of all, um, we're using the general purpose like large language model mainly because their their scale and emergent capability and the built-in knowledge in that. So it will be um, it will be difficult to shrink the model down uh, while still keeping these uh, knowledges. So that will be like one key challenge for us. However, we do have motivation to uh, bring those models down, like to uh, kind of distill those models. Uh, one is one main thing is about efficiency. So currently, uh, the inference is quite heavy, and we definitely want to like make it uh, smaller so that we can do inference faster. In terms of like the unwanted behavior, I would say current the second decoding is quite safe because we only uh, allow it to output like certain actions using the mm. scoring mode. So we don't get a lot of like undesired behavior. So for us, if if we want to shrink the model down, it's mainly for like efficiency purposes, not for like unwanted behavior. Yeah, I think the in terms of specializing these general purpose models, right now we that the main tool that we have for this, other than affordance scoring and so on, um, is prompting. Um, right. So you can think of prompting as some way of of specifying the the task and specializing the model to, to the specific thing that you want it to to do. I think as we gather more data for the for the tasks that we actually care about we could also think of other ways such as fine-tuning the the model um fine-tuning a set of parameters and i think there is kind of a many options that we could we could consider there to make this the model a little bit more specialized that go beyond just prompting it so there's a line in the secan paper in the conclusion that says it is also interesting to examine whether natural language is the right ontology to use to program robots and uh I'm, and i just observing that language models most of them seem pretty generic they are only conditioned on the previous text and so it's not maybe not clear how to condition them on on other things do you see wanting to have language models that can be conditioned on other things or do you think the vanilla language models whether they're distilled or not are the are are the right paradigm here any comments on that there may be two aspects to this and this may be like a little more philosophical so i think that the first aspect is that language just seems to be a really nice interface that is very interpretable for all of us but it also captures the compositionality and the relationships between all the different tasks that we might consider the, the robots to do. So I think it's just like a, a really nice representation that potentially can make a robot learning easier. Because as we mentioned earlier, if you have two tasks that look very similar, they will be probably described by the same set of words. Um, and I think that's that's really useful and kind of for free on top of that, you also get the interpretability of it. Um, and then separately, I think this is what, what your question is pointing towards. Um, I think we, we should be considering other modalities in these, in these large models and how they can influence, you know, the, the planners and, and robot learning in general. Uh, I think something like inner monologue or Socratic models is just one way of doing this that is more practical because a lot of 
multi-model models have the language component so you can just kind of ask a vision vision language model to describe what it sees in language and then that's the way you can incorporate it into your big um, language model um, but as these multi-model models get better and better i would hope that we can incorporate much more into our prompt we can incorporate what we currently see you know what's our confidence in the actions that we are about to take and so on this would be just a much richer way of specify or, or kind of meta programming the robot right so not only you can just specify i want you to help me clean something up but maybe you can also demonstrate something and that's also part of the of the prompt that the robot can then understand you know understand that you wanted to this thing to be picked up in a certain way or, or something like that so i think there's much more work to be done in in this interesting prompting multimodal prompting mechanisms that would allow us to to um teach robots better so I get that SACAN is a is lab work. It's not meant to be deployed in its current state. But uh, when we eventually get to these types of robots being deployed, do you think that they may have something in common with SACAN? Or what, what, do you think there's any parts of, of uh, these systems that might be long-term advances uh, versus stepping stones? Or is it more a stepping stone situation? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think um, if we think of um, language models as these reasoning engines that can tell us a lot about the, the semantics and about the world um, in general, I think probably some form of this is here to stay. These seem to be just really, really powerful models that understand common sense to a certain extent. And um, that I think is very, very helpful um, for, for robot learning. And I think we'll see this going forward. Maybe that will be a slightly different kind of model that can also incorporate other modalities, as we mentioned, but I could I can imagine that some form of this, some form of this distilled knowledge would stay. Can you talk about a bit about how you think about your, your future work? To what extent do you plan far in advance or are you taking things more step by step? Do you replan all the time? How do you plan your, your future work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think it depends on the, on the individual. Um, I think for, um, for this project, I tend to split it into th three main aspects. Um, the, this data generation, we need to be able to just generate a lot of data with robots. Then the other aspect is data sponge um, algorithms. So just find algorithms that are able to absorb all of that data. And that's often very, very tricky. And we spend a lot of time there. And then the, the third aspects are just um, things such as modeling. How do you get the models to be, to be better? And um, I think for for a long time, uh, the bottleneck was actually the, the the algorithms themselves, how well they can absorb all the data. So we we saw, for instance, in in um, in language, that once transformers came out, um, they were just really really good data sponges, and you can kind of throw a lot of data at them, and then you can observe this fascinating scaling loss, and the performance continues to improve. And we've been trying to do to, to find an equivalent of that in robotics, whether it's an offline RL algorithm or some imitation algorithm or, or something else, something that can absorb as much data and as diverse data as possible. I think now we are slowly getting to the point where this is no longer a bottleneck. There is a lot of algorithms that can absorb actually quite a lot of data. So I think we'll uh, we'll kind of then look at the the state of, of things and see what is the bottleneck now and i suspect that it will be data generation itself so how can we 
you know, develop algorithms or, or develop even just processes for collecting very diverse data for very diverse tasks, um, either on the real robots or how can we incorporate human data? How can we just scale up our data collection significantly? Are you surprised by uh, some of the fast progress in AI lately? And do you think it's going to keep accelerating? For me, I, I personally am really surprised that the scaling laws continue to hold. I think I find it absolutely fascinating. And I think we kind of maybe take it, take it for granted a little bit that, um, you know, we, we saw it a few times and now it's just like, a, it's considered maybe boring or some people refer to it as just like pure engineering that there aren't any novel ideas. It's just about scaling things up. And I think first, I think scaling things up is extremely hard and I don't really subscribe to the notion of it's just engineering. I think it's just, it's, it's really, really hard. And, um, it's as much of a, there's so many novelties there as much as in any novel research idea. And I think it's just, yeah, it's, it's mind blowing to me that we can make so much progress by pushing this one direction. How do you see the kind of competition slash cooperation between different labs and are other labs doing cool work too? Yeah, there's plenty of other labs that do really cool work. Um, I think we pay a lot of attention to what's happening in academia and in other industrial labs. I'm particularly interested in the algorithms that address problems that we um, start noticing at scale. So it's I think we get a lot of inspiration from different works that come out from from different labs that sometimes maybe they don't even realize that this is the problem that that is uh, you know really apparent when you scale things to like many robots or many robots doing many different tasks and um yeah these are super super useful things um we also tend to work with um with interns and student researchers and it's always refreshing when they when they come in and bring in all kinds of new ideas and ways to to use our system um so yeah i think we we draw a lot of inspiration from those what do you think of, of the concept of AGI? Do you find that, that idea useful to talk about or is it a distraction? Maybe like on a, on a more personal level, it's, it's a little hard to think about it, about AGI when your day-to-day -day work is, you know, you're looking at the robot struggling with grasping like an apple, you know, on a, on a countertop. <laughs> so like when you see how hard these things are and you know, how much work it takes to actually get it to do like the simplest things. It's kind of quite difficult to imagine, you know, all the steps that would need to be taken and how it just like at some point will, will progress and exponentially. From my side, I like to be like more grounded and just to make solid progress towards the robot capability. So I haven't been thinking about AGI too much. However, I do think uh, when people discuss AGI, they also think about like ethics and safety. And I think those are good to for us to think about like early on. When we start to build those methods, we also take into like safety and ethics into consideration. And I think like down the road, when we have more powerful models, we we are uh, so we we are safe on that regard. Makes sense. And it seems that there's I mean there's been such uh, great progress in terms of the language models being able to write these big essays, the um, image models being able to generate incredible art and then there's kind of a gap between that and what we see in robotics are we waiting for something maybe it's the data sponge that you were talking about or the data generation carol uh, but are we waiting for some advance that can lead to some sort of uh, 
ImageNet moment for robotics? Is that ahead or is that behind us? There's been a few moments that were significant, I think, in, in robot learning, but I don't think we've had the, the ImageNet moment yet. I, I think one of the one of the underlying maybe hopes behind something like Seiken was to, to kind of attach ourselves a little bit more towards the progress that is happening in other fields, right? So if there, if we find some way of, of having language models improve robotics, then as they improve, robotics will improve as well, or the same with multimodal models and so on, as, as shown in inner monologue. But I think um, in terms of the low-level skills, I think these are still the, the early days. We are, I think, quite bottlenecked by... By the data available to us there there aren't there isn't that much data out there of robots doing many different things um you know nice data sets of just real robots you know, doing diverse set of tasks um so th that's another struggle that we have to we have to incorporate in, in all of this uh but i think we're making decent progress there but yeah i think the the bigger breakthroughs are still in front of us is there anything else I should have asked you about uh, today or anything else you want to uh, share with our audience? I guess I would just uh, briefly mention that it's really inspiring to see that the progress of the natural language processing kind of trickle down into robotics and start to solve some of the robotics problem for us. Uh, in general, I think this more interdisciplinary uh, research in AI is super, super exciting. And uh, uh, we cannot wait to see more of that coming into robotics. Yeah, I, f I fully agree. I think this um, unification, I think it was really hard to think anything like this even a few years back. Um, that, you know, some improvement that you can make to an architecture um, can, uh, you know, improve robotics and vision and language and, and all of these things. Um, so it's, on one hand, it's super exciting to see something like this that we were kind of all pushing in, in one direction and we can all benefit from each other. And um, even for us specifically at Google, we are you know, closely collaborating with, with language folks, with language researchers. And um, it's just very cool to have this um, you know, interdisciplinary team uh, where we can kind of all push in, in a single direction. Um, I think on the other hand, that's also important, especially for um academic labs to uh you know don't don't jump on the on the hype train and maybe like if there is something that that you're really passionate about and you know something that uh, that you believe will improve robotics or robot learning or whatever you're interested in i think it's important to keep pushing on that as well i'm a little worried that we'll lose a little bit of this diversity in terms of research ideas that are out there because of this unification so i think it's important to keep both but yeah it's, it's super exciting well i want to thank you both so much for joining us today and taking the time to share your insight with the talk rl audience thank you so much Fei Sha. thanks thanks for our invitation and thank you carol hausman thank you thanks for having us mm -hmm.